So our reading today is from Acts 4, uh, verse 32 to Acts 5, verse 11. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of the possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that, all, that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men who came in and finding her dead carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all, who heard, <clears throat> and all who heard about these events. This is the word of the Lord. Um, this is part of a series that we are, we began back in May. We're looking at the story of the church in its very first days and weeks as told in the book of Acts, uh, which was written by Dr. Luke. So back to the beginning, first slide. I'll tell you when. We're already halfway through the slideshow there. Don't worry. Back to the top. Um, and um, yeah so Acts written by Dr. Luke he also wrote the Gospel of Luke the two books are really two parts of the same story and we're going to doing this really just to get our head around what the church is all about what it's for and trying to draw from that a sense of what we should be doing today and it kind of fits right in with this uh, vision we have uh, for our church of becoming disciples of Jesus with Jesus like Jesus for everyone so to break down what it looks like in the, the, the practices um, or the, in practice, this has been the journey so far. So we've seen a church, a community uh, with worship and prayer front and center, then getting organized. We've been doing a lot of getting organized over the past 18 months in what we think of now as this sort of post-pandemic world. Then we saw the church empowered by the Holy Spirit whom Jesus promised to send to enable them to be his witnesses in uh, Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. 
And so we saw the church, they started to proclaim the good news of Jesus' salvation available to all in his name, and then becoming uh, a community of love and generosity. More of that in today's reading. We'll look at that in a moment. And that's some of the kind of becoming like Jesus part of the story, to frame that in our vision. Then they started doing what Jesus did. They healed the sick. They performed these prophetic sign acts we talked about, which point to the future uh, when Jesus' kingdom arrives in all its fullness, boldly preaching and acting in Jesus' name, despite kind of growing opposition, which was beginning to head in the direction of of what you call uh, persecution. So this is Church 101, and our journey today continues with what is surely one of the most shocking and difficult passages in the book of Acts, perhaps the New Testament, maybe even the whole Bible. Because the story of first Ananias and then his wife Sapphira, two members of this fledgling community, dropping down dead on account of an episode of apparently fairly trivial dishonesty, is really disturbing and frankly unexpected because it comes right in the middle of this beautiful description of the community of the church, characterized by the kind of love and care for one another that Jesus said in John 13 would be their calling card. He said this is the way that his people would be recognized by the world around them, by their love for one another. So what's going on with this? What are we to take from it? Um, Are we in danger of dropping down dead if we're dishonest in church? Um, Because if that were true, I'm sure many of us, not many of us would be left standing, not least your vicar. Um, So what do we do with this passage? Writer and theologian C.S. Lewis once said this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Now that quote is included in the Youth Alpha video series, which we're currently doing with our, um, our younger youth on Sunday evenings. That's years 7 to 11. And if I had to give today's teaching a title, it would probably be Get Real and Get Serious. Get Real and Get Serious. Jess and I were watching The Crown the other night, um, the episode in which Winston Churchill, played brilliantly by John Lithgow, is reaching the end of his second stint as Prime Minister, and in his honour, Parliament has commissioned a painting of him by the modernist Graham Sutherland. And after many meetings and seemingly a growing friendship, the portrait of an ageing Churchill is revealed, and Churchill is horrified. And the dialogue goes something like this. Uh, Churchill, that is not a painting, it's a humiliation. A broken, sagging, pitiful creature. I will not accept it. Sutherland, I don't think it's wise to reject it. It was commissioned by the members of the Joint Houses of Parliament as a sign of respect. Churchill, well, they should have commissioned an artist who is respectful rather than a Judas wielding his murderous brush. Look at it. It is unpatriotic, treacherous, cowardly assault. It is not a reasonably truthful image of me. Sutherland, it is, sir. Churchill, it is not, it is cruel. Sutherland, age is cruel. If you see decay, it's because there's decay. If you see frailty, it's because there's frailty. 
Now, obviously, that account must be true because Netflix says so, right? Um, But regardless of whether that conversation actually took place, the truth of Churchill's reaction was evidenced by him having the actual painting smashed to pieces by his wife and then burned in an incinerator. Contrast that story with the official painting of another parliamentarian, famous parliamentarian, Oliver Cromwell. So um, Barclay notes that the painter, seeing that Cromwell had many warts on his face, sought to please the great man by omitting them. But when Cromwell saw the picture, he said, take it away and then paint me again, warts and all, which is where the saying repeatedly comes from. It can be so tempting to deny or hide from the truth. You know, Luke could easily have chosen to omit this really troubling episode from his account, leaving us instead of this kind of utopian image of the church family. Getting real is uncomfortable, but invariably the, the Bible prefers discomfort to sugarcoating. And as Lewis says, if Christianity is real, then we have to take God and each other seriously. Get real get serious. So let's take a look at this reading. Do grab a Bible if you can. Um, they're along the pews. Acts 4.32. Um, find it on page uh, 10, no not 10,096, 1,096. The Bible is long, isn't it? It's not that long. Um, so it all starts so well. Um, a major theme for Luke, both in his gospel and in Acts, is to give us examples, concrete examples of what it looks like for people to follow Jesus in practice, which is what our vision is all about. Verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. So this isn't just a kind of nice sounding reality. To people who knew their Old Testament, which Luke's readers did, this was deeply symbolic language. There's a lot in the Old Testament about having um, the importance of having an undivided heart and mind. It's something that prophets like Jeremiah held up as the fulfillment of God's promises when his people have singleness of heart and action. That's in Jeremiah 32 if you want to take a look at that sometime. So this is Luke saying, this is now happening. This is the fulfillment in this community. And um, one in heart and mind didn't just mean sort of agreeing on disputed matters. In fact, there was plenty of disagreement in the church. But it meant that they were ready to regard each other's needs as their own. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Now, this didn't mean that they all gave up their possessions. The property didn't stop belonging to people, it meant though that they saw everything they had as being for the benefit of the fellowship. This is about a a heart shift. Karl Marx said that nearly every human attitude and action can be traced to economic sources. Or as Jesus put it, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The church, inspired by the preaching of the gospel and the power of the spirit had learned to subvert that instinct and see themselves as primarily responsible for and to one another by the way there's a a measure of good preaching there and the power of the holy spirit isn't it if it leads to people putting one another before money then you're doing something right that's a good assessment of preaching 
Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So they weren't put off by the Sanhedrin's ban if you were here last week. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that was. What does the sign of God's grace say powerfully at work? There was no needy person among them. Again, this is uh, kind of all the fulfillment of the Lord. Deuteronomy 15, God says, there will be no poor among you. From time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales. They put it at the apostles' feet. This was a kind of sign of, uh, it was kind of legal symbolism to place something at someone's feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. It's beautiful. This is what um, John Calvin wrote about the passage. Sorry, the writing's a bit small, isn't it? I'll read it out anyway. We must have hearts that are harder than iron if we are not moved by the reading of this narrative. In those days, the believers gave abundantly of what was their own. They sold their own possessions in those days. In our day, it is the lust to purchase that reigns supreme. At that time, love made each man's own possessions common property for those in need. In our day, such is the inhumanity of many that they begrudge to the poor a common dwelling upon the earth the common use of water, air, and sky. It's 500 years ago those words were written. Could have been today, couldn't it? A couple of things to note. So the selling of land and houses was sporadic, okay, from time to time, and it was voluntary. So verse 36, Joseph, this... Um, Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, means son of encouragement. What a great name to have. He sold a field that he owned. He brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. So there was no compulsion, first up. That's going to be very important in a minute. And the fact that Barnabas is kind of identified by name suggests that this was an unusually noteworthy act. So if you own a field, God is not telling you to sell it. Um, we might be, um, but I'm not, um, and I don't think that's the primary application of this passage. By the way, um, Barnabas, a Levite by birth, Levites in the Old Testament were responsible for the care and oversight of the temple. Stick that in the back of your mind, we'll come back to it. But that's a beautiful picture that's painted. God's Spirit has transformed these people, not just into courageous preachers of the good news about Jesus, but also courageous givers who love deeply. And here we come to the Churchill-Cromwell conundrum. And Luke chooses the warts and all version. So uh, Ananias, this, uh, Acts 5 verse 1, Ananias, his wife Sapphira, like Joseph Barnabas, sell some property, but they keep back some of the money, bringing the rest uh, to give to the apostles. The question, is this a crime? Were Ananias and Sapphira expected to sell this property and give the proceeds away? No. So why do this? Lie about something nobody is expecting uh, you or asking you to do. Now, commentators say that the Greek kind of words here suggest a sense of misappropriation or embezzlement. And, you know, that this shows that their motive wasn't so much about the poor as fattening their own ego, something we can all relate to. But that still doesn't seem to justify what happens next. 
Peter said, verse 3, Ananias, how is it that Satan's filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. So Peter, it seems, along with powerful preaching and ability to heal people in Jesus' name, now also has supernatural insight and the ability to pronounce curses on sinners. Just to let you know, I don't know what any of you give to the church, okay, apart from a very few cases where people have told me, and I don't have the ability to strike anyone down dead, okay? You'll be relieved to know. Believe me, I tried to call curses down on mosquitoes when we used to live in Uganda. Zero success. But joking aside, this is pretty grim stuff. And it gets worse. Ananias is taken away. He's buried. Hot climate culture. Bury the body quick. His wife comes in. Peter asks her the same question. She gives the same answer. And she too falls down dead. This is how the story ends. Verse 11. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is the first time in Acts, really, where the the word church is used to describe these people. Ananias and Sapphira have done exactly what Barnabas has done, except they kept a little bit back. Now, we all have a sliding scale of wrongdoing, don't we? There are certain crimes that we feel more relaxed about and some kind of offenses that we take more seriously. And if you're anything like me, you might think that Ananias and Sapphira have done something good here. I mean, maybe, obviously, not quite as good as Barnabas, but nevertheless, it's a sacrificial giving. So it feels strange and disturbing that out of all the examples of wrongdoing in the church, which we know there were plenty of, this is the one that costs the perpetrators their lives. It seems extreme. It seems unreasonable. It seems, because um, harsh would be an understatement, wouldn't it? I'll tell you what it sounds like to me. It sounds like a story that kind of belongs in the Old Testament, those bits where God's holy presence in the temple is kind of potentially deadly to sinful or impure people. But I think there's a clue in that link. Because Luke is telling us, if you remember back, that the church is the new temple. Remember back to Pentecost, Acts 2. That's what we saw. The temple of God's presence is no longer a building, It's a people. God's fiery presence expressed by the Holy Spirit in tongues of fire which rested on them. And the message to the early church in this was that God's presence is serious business. Peter said to them, they hadn't just lied to people, they had lied to God. And their dishonesty threatened to undo everything that was good about what we read about in Acts 4, that community of love and openness. You see, it was never about the money. Never is with God. Next month we'll be talking to you about the financial situation of the church that we find ourselves in. It's hugely challenging at the moment. Uh, Someone once said to me, though, that churches don't have financial problems. They have spiritual problems. God is always more interested in our hearts in our pockets but as a Levite Barnabas would have known 
how sacred God's temple was and how important it was to take God's presence seriously. In the Old Testament, we hear a lot of stories about God's judgment falling on his people for not taking his presence seriously. Uh, A commentary I found about one of those incidents, this was in Elijah's time, said this, these are harsh words and harsh deeds. Yet these words were aimed at shaking the people of the time out of their complacency and ultimately opening them again to the God of love. The story of the Bible is one of people turning away from God and closing themselves to God and to one another. That's what the story of Genesis is getting at. Close to God, close to one another. God's temple then Jesus' death and life and resurrection. Now in this story, the spirit-filled church is all about reversing that, reopening the connections between people and between people and God. And that quote is, I think, as, as good an explanation for the, this tragedy of Acts 5 that I can find. What's at stake here was all that was good and beautiful about this unique prophetic community of love and openness. God's presence is holy. God's temple is holy. God's people are holy. And, you know, as as one commentator says, we can't expect to have all the good stuff, all these healings, the preachings, the miracles, the power, without having the flip side of that too. Somebody once said to me, take God seriously, yourself, not at all. And that's really good advice for a vicar, actually. (laughs) But I'd add this. We are to take one another seriously too. We are to take God's people seriously, his temple. It matters. When people take God seriously and one another seriously, churches grow. When they don't, they decline. Do we take God seriously enough? Do we take each other seriously enough? Remember Lewis's words. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, of infinite importance. It cannot be only moderately important. It's one or it's the other. And that's the heart of this story, I think. Very briefly then, two applications for us from this today. Um, I can't remember who first said, character is what we do when nobody's looking. If you're looking for a test of where your heart is, try the spiritual discipline of doing something that you can't or won't get credit for this week. Um, An act of anonymous generosity. Keep it between you and God. It's an interesting exercise. And there are all kinds of ways that we don't take God seriously, um, but I suggest one of the most damaging is when we don't believe what he says about us. That he loves you that you matter to him, that you are loved in your brokenness, that there is hope and healing when you come to him, however you come. I have to be really careful here. I don't think if we fail to be truthful to God, we risk dropping down dead like Ananias and Sapphira. But when our primary need is connection with God, when we deny ourselves like that, then... like Ananias and Sapphira, you might say we are already a little dead inside. 
try a little openness with God this week. It's all he wants. Goal one of our vision, be with Jesus. Maybe that's finding a little more time for silence and solitude this week before the chaos of half-term is upon us. Perhaps it's to get a journal out, either a, a new one or one that you haven't had out for a while. Maybe it's an invitation to be just a little bit more real with God than you have been. Tell him how you're really feeling. God welcomes us at our most honest and raw. Go and look at the Psalms. You'll see they're full of that. Secondly, we all face this Churchill-Cromwell dilemma. One thing that we are better as a society uh, than any previous generation is image management. But when we hide from each other, we are a little less like that beautiful picture in Acts 4, and we're a little bit more like Acts 5, 1 to 11. We are called to openness, to share our lives. This week, I'm hoping to get a survey out um, asking you about a few areas of our church life. One of them is uh, small groups, um, just uh, sort of ways of regularly meeting together to build relationships of openness within the church. My hope and dream is that as uh, come the new year, many of us who are not already will become part of some form of small group fellowship, a chance to share something of our lives and journeys together. And I've said before, I'm not under any illusion that the sermons are where any real change takes place. Real change, real growth comes not from being talked at, um, but from being vulnerable uh, and real with God and with one another. That's how we learn to be with Jesus, become like him and do what he did. As a community, like the church in Acts 4, that is one in heart and mind. So let's pray. Would you stand?